Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. I am Patrick. And I'm Tony. Uh, but hopefully uh, you're continuing on, especially if you're a presuppositionalist, with uh, our book, uh, John Frame's uh, Apologetics, A Justification for Christian Belief, because uh, he's been a, a little bit critical on, on Vantillian or Bonsonian uh, uh, tag arguments. And so um, uh, you might uh, uh, not not be a fan of, of his now, uh, or, or maybe you've, <laughs> you've, you've taken to heart some of the things that he said and, and thrown off the shackles of presuppositionalism and uh and uh, put on your hats for uh for the ontological view and so um hopefully uh he's made his case uh to you uh we we've we've commented on a little bit and probably have our own ideas but uh, we're walking through this book and uh now we're on chapter five where he doesn't really throw out tag but uses it as kind of a precursor to talk about kind of the theistic arguments that he would use and mm -hmm. it's interesting because the very first part of chapter five where he talks about having uh, apologetics as proof theistic arguments he kind of caveats a lot with what it's what it does and what it doesn't do and what he thinks it might be done well but also he kind of hedges his bets uh, quite a bit here at the at the very start yeah yeah now and and also what we'll see here is he kind of intermingles tag with the other kind of uh, traditional theistic arguments which is kind of an interesting take on how tag could work right Right. And that, that would be what we see as well. Right. And so, he, you know, he, he's he's definitely a person that doesn't believe that we should just allow people to have their autonomous reasoning uh, that uh, that uh, the scriptures should um, uh, be enacted in the in the type of belief system that we're a part of. And one of those is that mankind is not autonomous and, and uh, that uh, everything falls under the the, the subjugation of of God and his uh, law and command. And so here he's going to kind of apply it and and cover some of the things that as a classical uh, apologetic person you may be familiar with and it may have a, a a slightly different ring to it but also if you're a presuppositionalist this will uh, uh feed into uh kind of what you know uh well as well and uh and so uh hopefully this will uh kind of add uh, more tools in your quiver uh to to pull out when needed and so um, here he's going to uh, kind of uh, walk through three different ones, and for probably this and the next episode, we'll cover his his kind of main thrust of, of what he thinks is the best proof, and then uh, uh, finish up with covering the other two. So he starts out by saying that he will now present an example of a way to prove God's existence, taking into account the pre preceding introductory points of, of Tag and, and the, the uh, previous chapters that have come before. It will be a rather different from the ways to God described in the preceding sections. In a way, it will resemble the most traditional of sorts of apologetics. Yet, the ultimate conclusion is quite Vantillian. Uh, nothing is intelligible unless God exists. So uh, that, that's kind of the the the, um, the first basis that uh, that presuppositionalists point to. And so uh, Van, uh, what Frame is saying is that uh, he just because he's critical of some of Van Til's points, uh, he he views kind of that framework as as the um, the literal framework that he's he's going to present these type of arguments with. Yeah, good. And he says that, you know, this argument will not be appropriate for every witnessing situation. Of course, no argument is. He he uh, he acknowledges um, because uh, apologetics, and this is a point that he made earlier, is person variable. Right? So what may be persuasive to one person may not be persuasive for another person. Nonetheless, he tells us uh, many educated adults from traditional Western culture should be able to follow, uh, you know, the main thrust and 
appreciate the its logical force of the argument that he's going to put together. He says these people obviously are the ones that he's most used to dealing with. He's a professor and he teaches in a seminary, right? And so right. those are the those are the folks that he's considering. He says this argument is not absolutely certain, right? So you know, many readers, he says, will find a problem in that particular thing that he doesn't get, you know, that absolute certainty. It's not a proof per se, right? I think it's what he's getting at. Here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet it should have some persuasive value, uh, granting that persuasiveness he's uh, already mentioned is very difficult to measure in apologetics. Right. So right. That's so what he's he after. Could. So he's, he's not saying that uh, you can just plug into humanity, uh, you know, these facts and uh, we'll we'll run through the premise. And once the conclusion is, is set forth, we we come to it and we ding out a card from our mouths and say, yeah. yes, I, I must now believe that. In fact, yeah. uh, th- there's there's a point that he's going to get later in the chapter that actually uh, uh, deals with that quite a bit. And um, I was really impressed with with that portion of it. Uh, but but uh, it's, it's also to say. Um, you know, the persuasiveness aspect to it is something that uh, um, uh, apologists tend to get heart, heart on, especially as a presuppositionalist by, by saying, oh, you know, presuppositionalism, that might be fine and everything, but it, it doesn't persuade anybody, so, so it's not useful. And he's saying, uh, let's, let's take the, the best of that persuasive element that is useful and factor it in uh, with, with these um, theistic arguments that he presents here. Right. And so while he doesn't, you know, show absolutely that, you know, God exists and that sort of thing in terms of uh, he does still call this a proof. Right? He still says that it is a proof. It's just not uh, what we would generally think of. As right. Right. So he says uh, this proof should help the reader to see in what sense the evidence for God is obvious. Romans one twenty tells us that God's existence is clearly perceived in creation. But alas, we are so often look and fail to see it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the presuppositionalist knows Romans 1 well, uh, and, and so, does, so should the Christian, uh, because it's, uh, it's, it's a way for us to say, well, how come then people don't just look up to the stars and see? And sin plays a big factor into that, and it plays a big factor into that story. And we looked at that, especially with uh, Scott Christensen's book that we did uh, uh, a couple books ago. So this argument should also help us uh, to see how all intelligibility and meaning and indeed all uh, predication uh, depends on God. And he says that he, that he intends to show that such predication depends on moral values and that those in turn depend on God. And this proof has, therefore, the force of tag, though it is formulated in positive rather than negative forms for the most part. And we, we uh, covered that uh, positive and negative uh, as well. And there's actually a short clip on, on our YouTube and also cavethecross.com where if, uh, if you're wanting to familiarize yourself with what he said, uh, you can check out just that portion. But he says that he will be arguing in effect, moral values, therefore God. So there, he's done it. <laughs> so yeah, that's the basic thrust of his argument. Now, the first thing he does is he kind of makes he kind of clears the way here for, um, uh, you know, uh, the general type of objection that perhaps an agnostic would say, right, that, you know, well, we can't know or I don't. So he says uh, he starts off and this is a section on atheism and agnosticism. And he says that our values determine our beliefs in the same way that they determine our behavior. Right. There are many who claim to be neither theists nor atheists, he says, but agnostics. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And he says that they, uh, you know, they claim that they do not know whether or not God exists. Of course, scripture denies that, you know, anyone can be agnostic, right? Again, Romans mm-hmm. 1, we see that. So in one sense, he says, everyone is a theist, for everyone knows God. But in another sense, unbelievers are atheists, for they seek to erase or to deny this knowledge and thus to live on uh, atheistic presuppositions. And uh, he says, in this model, no one is an agnostic, right? Because scriptures say we has revealed himself to everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he kind of furthers uh, this, this point by saying uh, there is no agnosticism by the scriptural behavior test. If someone were genuinely agnostic, he would be frantically trying to find ways of hedging bets at least giving lip service to God, who after all might one day judge him. And so you don't see uh, agnostics or self-proclaimed agnostics saying, well, you know, uh, this week uh, I, I, I don't know one way or the other, so I'm going to act in such a way that uh, God is real. Uh, they're, they're just kind of, uh, kind of holding down the fort uh, until someone presents them uh, kind of persuasive proof uh, in, in their minds. But we, we don't see them taking the opposite approach. It's, it's always on a, uh, a, a, a negative belief. There's no, there's no positive belief that would put them uh, ultimately on the fence. They're just uh, kind of giving lip service to saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm willing to be persuaded, but ultimately you're not persuaded. Therefore uh, there, there are no agnostics. But yeah, as a matter so of- when, when I, when I read this, I, I, I immediately thought of Pascal's wager mm-hmm. right? when he says this hedging your bets, right? right? Pascal says, Hey, if we don't know, you know, if there's no good uh, evidence one way or another, then we should hedge our bets and, and, you know, act as if God exists because that's the best bet, right? Because if mm-hmm. he does exist, then we're good to go says Pascal, right? We're, we're right. safe. If he doesn't exist, it doesn't matter. And so that's kind of, I think, what he's getting at here, right? The agnostic, if he was really agnostic, we'd see it in their behavior. I don't know if God exists, but just in case he does, I'm going to hedge my bet and, you know, act as if he does. And, right. and of course, the point he's making is that the agnostic doesn't do this. Right. right. Well, he says, as, as a matter of fact, most professing agnostics do not hedge their bets in that way. Rather, they totally ignore God's word in their decision making. They never go to church, never seek God's will, never pray. In other words, they never behave exactly uh, uh, like atheists, not as if they were in some way, uh, some halfway position between atheism and theism. They always act as atheists until presented. uh, You know, they might be more open to listening. They might give more credence to, well, you know, the the, uh, idea of of Christian thought has persuaded in a positive direction uh, the, uh, the undertakings of the last to, uh, you know, 2000 years of, of history. Uh, and, and so, you know, they might, you might see some value, but as far as uh, uh, a positive belief, uh, it's, it's not there. It's always a negative belief until uh, such time as their minds will be changed. Right. And so and this is what he's getting at by the behavior test, the scriptural behavior test, right? You can say what you think all, all the time, all, you know, in all types of uh, situations. But let's look at how your behavior is. Right? If you say you're agnostic, he's suggesting there should be a certain kind of behavior, this hedging bet arguments, we might <laughs> say, right? But uh, he says we don't see that with agnostics. They act exactly the way atheists act, right? Mm-hmm. And so what he says then is then, and we should always remember that there is no halfway house between, you know, being God's friend and being his enemy. 
And he quotes several scriptures to help back this up. Joshua 24, 15, choose this day whom you will serve, right? Uh, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, Jesus said. Uh, Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And so he says that the argument that follows is directed toward atheists and even those agnostics who give lip service to agnosticism, but live as atheists. And so he says, really, you know, that kind of belies the claim of being an agnostic. Your behavior does, right? And so he says, there's really only two, right? The believer and the atheist. And so his his aim then with this argument is at the atheists, whether they call themselves atheists or agnostic. Right. All right, so we've removed all agnostics from the world. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right, well, here's here's his moral argument. Here here's here's where he uh, gets into his uh, w- what he would present as uh, proof uh, in in a general overarching way on on what uh, he he would I think value as as the preeminent one that he would uh, that he would uh, present. So the traditional theistic arguments have sometimes focused on ca- causality and sometimes on purpose and or design, and sometimes on ontology, that is the nature of being in general. More recently, various arguments that focus on moral values have emerged. He says that his argument is of the latter source, uh, at least that is uh, how it begins, is, is he's gonna focus on this, this moral claim of, of um, um, moral values uh, actually existing and finding out therefore what. Right, exactly. So he calls us the moral arguments. Right? So he's going to give us a moral <laughs> argument for the existence of God. And so he begins by kind of clearing the way here, and he's going to look at, uh, you know, how folks attempt to um, determine what morality is or the source of morality. He's going to give us several attempts at uh, coming up with the source of morality, and he's going to try to show that those sources are wrong. And then he's going to show that, obviously, God is the source of morality. So uh, that's, as you said earlier, uh, morality, therefore, God, right? That's that's what he's getting. So he asks the question, what are moral values and how can we come to know them? Uh, he says, some have argued that although right and wrong cannot be directly seen or heard, they do arise from experience. So here's the first kind of uh, source of morality Mm -hmm. comes from our experience of the world right Right. well he's you know david hume hume he tells us so this is david hume was a um you know wrote in the 1700s a scottish philosopher uh you know uh extremely influential as we as we uh, probably know in the history of ideas and philosophy hume points out that x brings good consequences though and this is the point that he makes here, does not logically imply that X is morally good. Just because, you know, something is the case is what we're going to see here doesn't mean that it ought to be the case. Or just because something brings about good consequences, you know, does not uh, logically imply that is morally good. Statements about facts, he says, and cannot entail any conclusions about morality. Valueless facts do not imply values, uh, is, uh, does not imply ought. So this is Hume's famous, you know, is ought fallacy, right? (laughs) Right. Uh, That values, you know, you can't get an ought from an is. Just because something is the case 
doesn't tell us anything about what ought to be the case, right? right. So this is the Izzard fallacy that Hume made famous, actually, right. in his discussion uh, with regard to morality. And so is our experience of the world, the facts in the world, is that the source of morality? Well, he's suggesting that Hume is saying, no, that's not. We can't get morality from facts in the world. We can't get an ought from an is. That's right. the issue that he brings up. So experience doesn't seem like it's the source of morality. Right. If I take a baseball and I throw it at a brick wall of a store and it bounces and catches it, well, that's a lot of fun. I move over the glass pane and realize, oh, if I throw it at this glass window, uh, it won't bounce to, to me as well. In fact, it'll go through the window. Oh, that that's that's a thing that happens. But should I be doing it? That that that's where the the experience of of that uh, glass breaking or potential glass breaking doesn't tell me if I should even be throwing the ball at something that's not my property. And so right. uh, we're we're unable to to get that. Uh, uh, d- don't don't throw the ball at the glass because it's not yours is morally good. And so right. in other words, say, we. Right. We can see that if we throw the ball, it'll break the glass. Mm -hmm. We can experience that, but we don't experience that that the wrongness of it. Right. right? We don't really experience that. Right. All we can see is the activity of the ball being thrown and the glass being broken. And of course, we know that the glass is in mind. And and so but we don't see the wrongness of it. We don't see the evil in it. We don't see, you know, how that is immoral, some kind of way. Right. And that's basically the kind of thing that Hume is getting at. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there, we there, have there's these no, facts. yeah, there, there's no, I'm doing an experiment uh, uh, ability before the court uh, for yeah. where you got to pay it back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So some would say that these values are merely individual subjective feelings, right? That, I think that's uh, probably what, if, if you brought up uh, an, uh uh, this type of argument with other people before uh, you maybe less now uh, the, the postmodernist, you know, what's good for me is good for me. What but doesn't always mean that it's true for everybody. Um, but also you might be saying, well, you know, you're just as subjective as well with, with your ideas. And so, you know, we're, we all stand on our subjective feelings of, of ickiness or of it feeling wrong. But uh, but we can't say that it's it is wrong. It just feels that way subjectively. And he says that on this view, uh, we can call the thief's action of, of a bank robber evil or wrong because I am emotionally repulsed by robbery. Yeah. So well, there it is. Yeah. So, so it's not in. So now what he's suggesting here is that, uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, if if the fact doesn't automatically get us to a value statement, mm-hmm. maybe the reason why we believe it's wrong is because of our subjective emotional feelings. That's what he's getting at. So this is another, uh, we might say, you know, cause of uh, of morality or source of morality, our subjective feelings. Right. Every every time I walk into a bank with a a, a gun out and a bag, the the bag magically fills up with with cash, and I'm I'm richer. <laughs> Therefore, it's good because I walk out with something that I didn't have before, right? I mean, that's that's it. We we can't say that it's wrong because uh, well, that's just your subjective feeling. And so, what you know, what do we what do we do with that? Well, okay, it's easy enough to describe other people's ethical standards as subjective or emotional, but. Kind of few of us would, if any, would be willing to describe our own standard that way. 
uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever does the, the, the most amount of good for the most amount of people that that's what we should do. Well, except that you just don't, you don't view, uh, your standard as, as only, uh, the, 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 the squishiness that you would say, someone else would say, well, you know, whatever makes me the most happiness, uh, is, is what we should pursue. And, uh, I don't care about anyone else, but whatever makes me happy, uh, selfishly or selfishly, uh, is, is what, uh, is what is morally good. And so I should do that. Well, no, your, yours is wrong, but mine is right. But we wouldn't say, well, you know, both of us have different standards then. And we just kind of shrug our shoulders and, you know, go on our way. And then the other person robs you because, um, you, you've got something that they want and it makes them happy to have it and for you not to have it. Well, he says our evaluation of robbery is not just our own subjective taste though. It is a judgment that we are obliged to make and that we believe everyone else is also obliged to make, you know, just because I don't like it doesn't mean that, well, okay, I stick my hands in my pocket. Uh, I wish that person would have the same value statements <laughs> as, as, as I No, we, we hold people accountable. In fact, uh, when we were talking about uh, Mitch Stokes's uh, how to be an atheist, we, we critique Sam Harrison's on, on uh, a similar fashion for if, you know, if, if there's no such thing as, free choice. If, if everything is, is harshly determinative, uh, you know, what's the point of, of having court? Well, we do it because it's, it's good for society. Well, what does that matter if all things are determined and, and it doesn't matter what, 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 uh, what we say is, is, uh, ethically good or, uh, ethically not good. And we have, um, um, uh, things that we label as crimes that, that cause people to maybe reconsider their ideas. If, if all things are just determinative and here, you know, if, if all things are just subjective taste, why are we holding people accountable for that in a, a greater society? If all things are subjective, well, then it's just might makes right. And so we can then turn robbery into a good thing. If we have more votes than the, the person that uh, put, put forth the ideas that uh, robbery is wrong. <laughs> so what do we do? Right. Yeah. Good. So and, and that gets us to his his kind of third source for morality. So so far we've seen what's we the question is, what's the source of morality? And the first answer was, well, maybe it's because of the facts, our experience, the facts that we experience in the world. He says, no, 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 you can't get values from facts. Right. That that uh, goes against what Hume has suggested is the fact value fallacy. Okay, well, then maybe it comes from our own subjective feelings. Maybe it's how I feel. That's where what the source of morality is. And he says, no, no, no. I mean, everybody admits that, you know, uh, it goes further than that, than just what I feel, my own subjective, uh, you know, emotional feelings. Robbery is is bad, period, regardless of what I feel. Okay, well, then thirdly, it's possible that moral values then are not you know, individual subjective feelings, uh, you know, not merely the subjective feelings of uh, one person, but perhaps the shared feelings, right, in a given culture. And so culture or society passes down from one generation to the next, what's morally right or wrong. So maybe the culture or the society is a source of morality. Right. Well, again, he says, as a matter of fact, we don't we don't generally uh, regard moral values as mere cultural taste. Right. right. When we hear of cannibalism, for instance, in a far off tribe, he says, our response isn't. Well, I guess that's, you know, what their morality is all about. Right. I guess that's their particular taste. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. 
No, yeah. we don't say that. We say that is wicked, regardless of what their culture or society says, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, notice our subjective experience doesn't get us to morality, nor does our just the facts in the world, nor is it handed down by cultures. Cultures do not determine morality. So it's kind of clearing the weeds away here and meeting all of these uh, attempted sources of morality so that we can get to what he's after. Right, right. So as a matter of fact, we act and think as if these values were objective rather than merely subjective. So where does that come from? Where, where is that sourced in? If we deny objective values, we should be aware of the price we must pay. For denying objective values is something far more drastic than merely denying conventional or uh, parochial or standards of behavior. It's to deny rationality itself. Right, exactly. And so where's he going with this? Well, he says this, what is true right after all? And he says, uh, it is uh, many things, obviously, but among them, it is certainly an ethical value. So truth is an ethical value. The truth is what we ought to believe and what we ought to speak with uh, one another. And so these oughts are oughts of ethical value. Right. 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 So, so e- even if we did something like peer review, this is a point that I usually make is, okay, you could have all the peer review literature in the world, but if no one's... Uh, able to reproduce it with true statements like, oh, I, I reproduced this uh, this uh, experiment and I found the same thing. Well, if you didn't do that, that doesn't add to a, a, the, the truth of the statement. That just uh, makes you a liar. And once found out, it doesn't uh, advance the argument whatsoever. It just bolsters this idea that, well, peer review is the highest form of, of knowledge. And uh, the, the idea behind that is more uh, you know, there's an objective standard out there and uh, it's uh, beholden upon all of us to 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 uh, um, to interact with it in the same way. And then we are to, should communicate that truthful outcome uh, to other people. And so that that's where the, the peer review aspect comes from it. And so to, to tell the truth or to say, uh, I, I did this and I believe that you're uh, wrong in, in you know, the, the way that you did this experiment and I got this conclusion, th- there's the, the, there's where the ethical part of it comes in. Even even talking to one another, uh, we we base it on ethical standards. Uh, I, I come up to you and I say, you know, um, I disagree with, with what you did at work and so now I'm going to punch you. Well, th- that that's an unethical standard because that doesn't talk to the 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 facts of the case it's it's only i'm able to hit you and and that has nothing to do with whether uh it it was right or wrong so the the ethical uh value of even talking uh to one another uh is is formulated even here yeah right so we have to have some type of objective objective standard in fact he says the assertion that ethical values are merely subjective is self-contradictory like all statements of subjectivism or skepticism. skepticism. He says, uh, for the subjectivist is telling us that we have an objective moral obligation to agree with subjectivism. See the problem there? (laughs) The subjectivist is telling us that we have an objective moral obligation to agree with subjectivism, while also telling us that no one has an objective moral obligation to do anything. Well, you can't have it both ways, right? Either we have an objective obligation, therefore subjectivism is wrong, 
or we don't have a, a, a subject, an objective obligation. And therefore, I don't care what your subjectivism says. I have one, too. Right? <laughs> yeah. So my, my subjectivism yeah. is that all of us have to have one agreed upon objective value system. And so we go from <laughs> yeah. there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is self-defeating, by the Which way. Which is self-defeating. Okay, fine. All right. We didn't solve world peace at, at, at the yeah. end. All right. <laughs> well, okay. But before we consider the origin of moral values, let us note one more point. Ethical values are hierarchical and they're, they're structured that way. We should seek to make our children feel good is one ethical value, right? It's something that uh, I think we all can agree on. We want our children to, to uh, feel good, to be happy. Uh, to to have what's best. But for most of us, it is a secondary value to we should seek to teach our children self-discipline. One of those ways is, well, yeah, my, my children would love to have their iPads and, and play Roblox 24-7, but at some point they're going to have to learn math in order to figure out how much Roblox accounts for real money. And actually, probably the value of Roblox is uh, way better than even what the dollar is uh, at the at the taping of this, <laughs> of this episode. <laughs> but at any single moment, there is one principle that takes precedence over all the others. One that prevails over all uh, the others is governing our behavior. And we, we can see that by just walking through, okay, well, when, when come upon, uh, if you're a doctor, do no harm. Well, uh, I've, I've found a person who's, who's laying out in the street and I can save them uh, by, by um, cutting them open and removing this thing. I don't have their permi permission. Well, I should always have their permission, except this one thing could save their life to, for them to, to sue me. So at, at what point do we get you know, up the rung of the ladder to say, here's our single most important hierarchical peak of, of, of ethical behavior? Well, that highest value is not only objective, but also absolute, for it takes pre uh, precedence over all others and serves as a criterion for the truth of others. All right. So notice what he's done here. He says, okay, let's consider moral values. He says they're hierarchical, right? So some take precedent over others. They're higher than others. They're more important than others. Right. They should be, um, you know, exercised over others. But now, where do we stop? Well, he says there is a stopping point, right? There is a highest value that we kind of take that is over all the rest of the values, right? And so the next question then is, well, where does the authority of the absolute moral principle, the highest one, where does that authority come from? Mm -hmm. and yeah, so and says, I, I think we can, we can look at this, especially as Americans, is where 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 do we find the most uh, um, uh, ideas stem from for things like rebelling against the the Stamp Act or or you know the 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 Boston Tea Party? Well, it wasn't just rooted in the fact of of taxation, uh, which in and of itself is immoral and illegal, uh, but also <laughs> it, it was it, it, it was written about in in terms of freedom and liberty and and that that's what. Uh, 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 caused more people to to write points and counterpoints if uh, depending on uh, you know if you were for the rebellion or or for uh, 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 staying uh, as as a loyalist. Um, uh, so you have the idea of well, no taxation without representation, but the king is ultimately the the one in authority, and we don't go against him. Therefore, don't rebel. But then you have people who are writing about you know Lockean type. Uh, ideas of liberty and freedom and then from there say 
uh, and, and thus the king can't just uh, do away with uh, what, what should ultimately reside in the power of the governors, and uh, therefore this is immoral because of that. And so uh, you, you have that type of, of, of hierarchy, uh, even um, in kind of what us as Americans kind of view, and it's the ones we always go back to and, and read more and more, even though, yes, we should read about how seven cents for a, a stamp increase is um, immoral, even if the king doesn't. <laughs> Right. So notice he's getting at the source of morality and he says uh, there's this hierarchy, right? Some are higher than others, but there's always one that's absolutely authoritative over all the rest of it, all the rest of them. And so he says, you know, what's the source of that? And he, he, you know, he kind of cautions us that he's not asking whether the conviction itself, right, that this one is higher than the rest of them. He's not asking for the source of that. It's a, the source of that conviction as if it were a causal argument. The question, he says, concerns the authority of that principle. Why should I give it the enormous respect that indeed we do give it, that is the highest you know, principle that we use to judge all the rest of the things? That we do? And right. he says, well, ultimately, there's only two kinds of answers that are possible. The source of absolute morality uh, and moral authority is either personal or impersonal. Mm-hmm. That's what he says. So that's basically, ult- ultimately, there's, those are the two answers that we can come up with. Either the sources uh, of absolute morality uh, and moral authority is personal or it's impersonal. All right. Well, and so here's where we'll end part one of of uh, frames uh, um, kind of justification for uh, using the moral argument. Uh, and so um, when we come back, we'll kind of unpack uh, the, the, the two avenues that uh, someone can take. And uh, from there, we'll we'll get uh, deeper into his uh, his uh, understanding of what the uh, uh, morality, therefore, God uh, uh, argument is. So. Um, you can always uh, go back and, and um, uh, throughout the week, we uh, post uh, short clips with uh, cool uh, AI art uh, behind them. I've been uh, working with that. So you noticed uh, uh, a different transition to uh, to images. Uh, uh, you're welcome. I'm, I've been messing around with them. So I figure um, <laughs> might as well use them for, for good rather than, than evil, which is an ethical uh, decision that I made. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, continue to uh, Share, like, comment, subscribe, all those good things, and then uh, share it around. Tell other people. Uh, we appreciate uh, those of you who uh, uh, download every Monday or Tuesday. Uh, it depends on, on who wins out, depending on what you're doing. Uh, uh, so I see those, and uh, we, uh, we appreciate you uh, uh, opening up uh, these books along with us and figuring out uh, um, an apologetic study with us. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.